Chapter 8 of the Moors in Spain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. The Moors in Spain by Stanley Lane Paul. Chapter 8 The City of the Caliph. Cordova, says an old Arab writer is the bride of Andalusia. To her belong all the beauty and the ornaments that delight the eye or dazzle the sight. Her long line of sultans form her crown of glory. Her necklace is strung with the pearls which her poets have gathered from the ocean of language. Her dress is of the banners of learning, well knit together by her men of science and the masters of every art and industry are the hem of her garments. So did the oriental historian clothe the city he loved with the far-fetched imagery of the East. Cordova, under the rule of the great caliph, was indeed a capital to be proud of, and except perhaps Byzantium, no city of Europe could compare with her in the beauty of her buildings, the luxury and refinement of her life, and the learning and accomplishments of her inhabitants. When we remember that the sketch we are about to extract from the records of Arabian writers concerning the glories of Cordova relates to the 10th century, when our Saxon ancestors dwelt in wooden hovels and trod upon dirty straw, when our language was unformed, and such accomplishments as reading and writing were almost confined to a few monks, we can to some extent realize the extraordinary civilization of the Moors. And when it is further recollected that all Europe was then plunged in barbaric ignorance and savage manners, that only where the remnants of the Roman Empire were still able to maintain some trace of its ancient civilization, only in Constantinople and some parts of Italy were there any trace of refinement. The wonderful contrast afforded by the capital of Andalusia will be better appreciated. Another Arab writer says that Cordova is a fortified town, surrounded by massive and lofty stone walls, and has very fine streets. It was in times of old the residence of many infidel kings, whose palaces are still visible within the precinct of the walls. The inhabitants are famous for their courteous and polished manners, and their superior intelligence, their exquisite taste, and magnificence in their meals, dress, and horses. There thou wouldst see doctors shining with all sorts of learning, laws distinguished by their virtues and generosity, warriors renowned for their expeditions into the countries of the infidels, and officers experienced in all kinds of warfare. To Cordoba came from all parts of the world, students eager to cultivate poetry, to study the sciences or to be instructed in divinity or law, so that it became the meeting place of the eminent in all matters, the abode of the learned, and the place of resort for the studies. Its interior was always filled with the eminent and the noble of all countries. Its literary men and soldiers were continually vying with each other to gain renown, and its precincts never ceased to be the arena of the distinguished, 
the race course of readers, the halting place of the noble, and the repository of the true and virtuous. Cordoba was to Andalus what the head is to the body, or what the breast is to the lion. Oriental praise is apt to be somewhat high-flown, but Cordova really deserved the praise that has been lavished upon it. In its present states, it is impossible to form any conception of the extent and beauty of the old Moorish capital in the days of the great caliph. Its narrow streets of whitewashed houses convey but a faint impression of its once magnificent extent. The palace, Alcazar, is in decay, and its ruins are used for the vile purpose of a prison. The bridge still spans the Guadalquivir, however, and the noble mosque of the first Omayyad is still the wonder and delight of the travelers. But in the time of Abd al-Rahman III, or perhaps a little later, when a great minister added a new faubourg, it is at its best. Historians are divided as to its extent, but the length of at least ten miles seemed to be the most probable dimension. The banks of the Guadalquivir were bright with marble houses, mosques, and gardens, in which the rarest flowers and trees of other countries were carefully cultivated, and the Arabs introduced their system of irrigation, which the Spaniards, both before and since, have never equaled. The first Omayyad sultan imported a date tree from Syria, to remind him of his old home, and to it he dedicated a sad little poem to bewail his exile. It was planted in the garden which he had laid out in imitation of that of his grandfather Hisham at Damascus, where he had played as a child. He sent agents all over the world to bring him the rarest exotics, trees, plants, and seeds, and so skillful were the sultan's gardeners that this foreign importation was speedily naturalized and spread from the palace over all the land. The pomegranate was thus introduced by means of a specimen brought from Damascus. The water by which these numerous gardens were supplied was brought from the mountains, where vestiges of hydraulic works may still be seen. By means of leaden pipes, through which it was conducted to numerous basins, some of gold or silver, others of inlaid brass, and to lakes, reservoirs, tanks, and fountains of Christian marble. The historians tell us marvelous things about sultan's palaces, with their splendid gates, opening upon the gardens or the river, or again giving entrances to the great mosque, whither the sultan betook himself on Fridays, over a path covered from end to end with rich carpets. One of these palaces were called the Palace of Flowers, another the Palace of Lovers, a third the Palace of Contentment, and another the Palace of the Diadem, and so forth, while one retained the name of the old home of Omayyad and was called Damascus. Its roofs rested upon marble columns, and its floors were inlaid with mosaics, and so beautiful was it, that a poet sang, All palaces in the world are nothing when compared to Damascus, for not only has it gardens with the most delicious fruits and sweet-smelling flowers, beautiful prospect, and limpid running waters, clouds pregnant with aromatic dew, and lofty buildings, 
but its night is always perfumed, for morning pours on it her grey amber, and night her black musk. Some of the gardens of Cordoba had tempting names, which seemed to invite one to repose beside the trickling waters and enjoy the sweet scent of the flowers and fruits. The gardens of Waterwheel gives one a sense of lazy enjoyment, listening to the monotonous creaking of the wheel that pumped up the water to the level of the garden beds, and the meadow of murmuring waters must have been an entrancing spot for the people of Cordoba in the hot weather. The quiet flow of the Guadalquivir was a constant delight to the inhabitants, for the eastern and the moors of Spain were easterns in everything but longitude, loves nothing better than a view over a rippling stream. It was spanned by a noble bridge of seventeen arches, which still testifies to the engineering power of the Arabs. The whole city was full of noble buildings, among which were counted more than 50,000 houses of the aristocracy and official classes. More than a 100,000 dwellings were common people, 700 mosques and 900 public baths. The last were an important feature in all Muslim towns, for among the Mohammedans, cleanliness is not next to godliness, but is an essential preparation for any acts of prayer or devotion. While the medieval Christians forbade washing as a heathen custom, and the monks and nuns boasted of their filthiness, insomuch that a lady saint recorded with pride the fact that up to the age of sixty she had never washed any part of her body except the tips of her fingers when she was going to take the mass, while dirt was the characteristic of Christian sanctity, the Muslims were careful in the most minute particulars of cleanliness, and dared not approach their God until their bodies were purified. When Spain had at last been restored to Christian rulers, Philip II, the husband of our English Queen Mary, ordered the destruction of all public baths on the ground that they were relics of infidelity. Among the great architectural beauties of Cordoba, the principal mosque held, and still holds, the first place. It was begun in 784 by the first Abderrahman, who spent 80,000 pieces of gold upon it, which he got from the spurs of the Goths. Hisham, his pious son, completed it in 793 with the proceed of the sacking of Narbonne. Each succeeding sultan added some new beauty to the building, which is one of the finest examples of early Saracenic art in the world. One put the gold on the columns and walls. Another added a new minaret. Another built a fresh arcade to hold the swelling congregations. Nineteen is the number of the arcades from east to west, and thirty-one from north to south. Twenty-one doors encrusted with shining brass admitted the worshippers. 1,293 columns support the roof, and sanctuary was paved with silver and inlaid with rich mosaics, and its clustered columns were carved and inlaid with gold and lapis lazuli. The pulpit was constructed of ivory and choice woods. In 36,000 separate panels, many of which were encrusted with precious stones and fastened with gold nails. 
four fountains for washing before prayer, supplied with water from the mountains, ran night and day, and houses were built at the west side of the mosque, where poor travelers and homeless people were hospitably entertained. Hundreds of brass lanterns made out of Christian bells illumined the mosque at night, and a great wax paper weighing fifty pounds burnt night and day at the side of the preacher during the month of fasting. Three hundred attendants burnt sweet-smelling ambergris and aloes wood in the censers, and prepared the scented oil which fed the ten thousand wicks of the lanterns. Much of the beauty of this mosque still remains. Travelers stand amazed among the forest of columns, which open out in apparently endless vistas on all sides. The porphyry, jasper, marbles are still in their places. The splendid glass mosaics, which artists from Byzantium came to make, still sparkle like jewels on the walls. The daring architecture of the sanctuary, with its fantastic crossed arches, is still as imposing as ever. The courtyard is still leafy with the orange trees that prolong the vistas of columns. As one stands before the loveliness of the great mosque, the thought goes back to the days of the glories of Cordova, the palmy days of great caliph, which never will return. Even more wonderful, though not more beautiful, was the city and palace of Ezara, which Abderrahman III built as a suburb to Cordova. One of his wives, whose name was Ezara, the fairest to whom he was devotedly attached, once begged him to build a city which should be called after her name. The great caliph, like most Mohammedan sovereigns, delighted in building, and he adopted the suggestion. He at once began to found a city at the foot of the mountain called the Hill of the Bride, over against Cordoba, and a few miles distant. Every year he spent a third of his revenues upon this building, and it went on all the twenty-five remaining years of his reign, and fifteen years of the reign of his son, who made many additions to it. Ten thousand workmen labored daily at the task, and six thousand blocks of stone were cut and polished every day for the construction of the houses of the new city. Some three thousand beasts of burden were daily used to carry the material to the spot, and four thousand columns were set up, many of which were present from the Emperor of Constantinople, or came from Rome, Carthage, Sfax, and other places besides the home marbles quarried at Tarragona and Almeria. There were fifteen thousand doors, coated with iron or polished brass. The whole of the caliphs at the new city had a roof and walls of marble and gold, and in it was a wonderful sculptured fountain, a present from the Greek emperor, who also sent the caliph a unique pearl. In the midst of the hall was a basin of quicksilver, at either side were eight doors set in ivory and ebony, and adorned with precious stones. When the sun shone through these doors, and the quicksilver lake was set quivering, the whole room was filled with flashes like lightning, and the courtiers could cover their dazzled eyes. The Arabian authors delight in telling of wonders of this city of the fairest, Medinat Ezzara, as it was called after the caliph's mistress. 
We might go to a great length were we only to enumerate all the beauties, natural as well as artificial, contained within the precinct of Ezara, writes one, the running streams, the limpid waters, the luxuriant gardens, the stately buildings for the household guards, the magnificent palaces for the high functionary of states, the throng of soldiers, pages and slaves of all nations and religions, sumptuously attired in robes of silk and brocade, moving to and fro through its broad streets, or a crowd of judges, theologians, and poets, walking with becoming gravity through the magnificent halls and ample courts of the palace. The number of male servants in the palace has been estimated at 13,750, to whom the daily allowance of flesh meat exclusive of fowls and fish was thirteen thousand pounds the number of women of various kinds and classes comprising the harem of the caliph or waiting upon them is said to have amounted to six thousand three hundred and fourteen the slav pages and eunuchs were three thousand three hundred and fifty to whom thirteen thousand pounds of flesh meat were distributed daily some receiving ten pounds each and some less according to their rank and station, exclusive of fowls, partridges, and birds of other sorts, game and fish. The daily allowance of bread for the fish in the ponds of Ezara was 12,000 loaves, besides six measures of black pearls, which were every day macerated in the waters. These and other particulars may be found at full length in the histories of the times, and recorded by orators and poets, who have exhausted the minds of eloquence in their description. All who saw it owned that nothing similar to it could be found in the territories of Islam. Travelers from distant land, men of all ranks and professions in life, following various religions, princes, ambassadors, merchants, pilgrims, theologians, and poets, all agreed that they had never seen in the course of their travels anything that could be compared to it. Indeed, had this palace possessed nothing more than the terrace of the polished marbles overhanging the matchless gardens, with the golden hall and the circular pavilion, and the works of arts of every sort and description, had it nothing else to boast but the mastery workmanship of the structure, the boldness of the design, the beauty of the proportions, the elegance of the ornaments, hangings and decorations, whether of shining marble or glittering gold, the columns that seemed from their symmetry and smoothness as if they had been turned by lath, the paintings that resembled the choicest landscapes, the artificial lake so solidly constructed, the cistern perpetually filled with clear and limpid water, and the amazing fountains with figures of living beings, no imagination, however fertile, could have formed an idea of it. Praise be to God, most high for allowing his humble creatures to design and build such enchanting palaces as this, and who permitted them to inhabit them as a sort of recompense in this world, and in order that the faithful might be encouraged to follow the path of virtue by the reflection that, delightful as were these pleasures, they were still far below those reserved for the true believer in the celestial paradise. In the palace of Ezra, the caliphs received the queen of Navarre and Sancho, 
and gave audience to great persons of state. Here he sat to welcome the ambassadors which the Greek emperor sent to his court at Cordova. Having appointed Saturday, the 11th of months of Rabi el Awal, of the year of 338, A.D. 949, and fixed upon the vaulted hall in his palace of Ezara as the place where he would receive their credentials, orders were issued to high functionaries of state and to the commanders of the forces to prepare for the ceremony. The hall was beautifully decorated, and a throne, glittering with gold and sparkling with gems, was raised in the midst. On either hand of the throne stood the caliph's sons. Next to them was the viziers, each in his post to the right and left. Then came the chamberlains, the sons of viziers, the freedmen of the caliph, and the officers of the household. The court of the palace was strewn with the richest carpets and most costly rugs, and silk awnings of the most gorgeous kind were thrown over the doors and arches. Presently the ambassadors entered the hall, and were struck with astonishment and awe at the magnificence displayed before them and the power of the sultan before whom they stood. Then they advanced a few steps and presented the letter of their master, Constantine, son of Leo, lord of Constantinople, written in Greek upon blue paper in golden characters. Abderrahman had ordered the most eloquent orator of the court to make a suitable speech upon the occasion, but hardly had he begun to speak when the splendor of the scene and the solemn silence of great ones there assembled so overawed him that his tongue clove to the roof of his mouth and he fell senseless on the floor. A second essayed to fill his place, but he had not got very far in his address when he too suddenly broke down. So interested was the great caliph in building his new palace that he omitted to go to the mosque for three successive Fridays, and when at last he made his appearance, the preacher threatened him with the pains of hell for his negligence. Beautiful as was the palaces and gardens of Cordoba, her claims to admiration in higher matters were no less strong. The mind was as lovely as the body. Her professors and teachers made her the center of European culture. Students would come from all parts of Europe to study under her famous doctors, and even the nun, Roswitha, far away in a Saxon convent of Gaudersheim, when she told of the martyrdom of St. Eulogius, could not refrain from singing the praises of Cordova, the brightest splendor of the world. Every branch of science was seriously studied there, and medicine received more and greater additions by the discoveries of the doctors and surgeons of Andalusia than it had gained during all the centuries that had elapsed since the days of Galen. Albuquerque, or Abulkasim Khalaf, to give him his proper name, was a notable surgeon of the 11th century, and some of his operations coincided with the present practice. Avenzoa, even though a little later made numerous important medical and surgical discoveries. Even Beitar, the botanist, traveled all over the East to find the medicinal herbs on which 
he wrote an exhaustive treatise. And Averroes, the philosopher, formed the chief link in the chain which connects the philosophy of ancient Greece with that of medieval Europe. Astronomy, geography, chemistry, natural history, all were studied with the other at Cordoba. And as for the graces of literature, there never was a time in Europe when poetry became so much the speech of everybody, when people of all ranks composed those Arabic verses which perhaps suggested the models for the ballads and canzonets of the Spanish minstrel and troubadours of Provence and Italy. No speech or address was complete without some scrap of verse, improvised on the spur of the moment by the speaker, or quoted by memory from some famous poets. The whole Muslim world seemed given over to the muses. Caliphs and boatmen turned verses, and sang of the loveliness of the cities of Andalusia, the murmur of her rivers, the beautiful nights beneath the tranquil stars, and the delights of love and wine, of jovial company, and stolen meetings with the lady whose curving eyebrows had bewitched the singer. In the arts, Andalusia was preeminent. Such buildings as the city of the fairest, or the mosque of Cordoba, could not have been erected unless her workmen had been highly skilled in their handicrafts. Silk weaving was among the most cherished arts of Andalusia. It is said that there was no less than 130,000 weavers in Cordoba alone. But Almeria had the greatest name for her silks and carpets. Pottery was carried to great perfection, and it was from the island of Majorca where the potters had attained to the art of producing a ware shining with iridescent gold or copper luster that the Italian pottery attained its name of Majolica. Glass vessels, as well as others of brass and iron, were made at Almeria, and there are some beautiful specimens of delicate ivory carvings still in existence, which bear the name of the great officers of the courts of Cordoba. These arts were no doubt imported from the East, but the Moorish workmen became apt pupils of their Byzantine, Persian, and Egyptian masters. In jewelry, an interesting relic of the son of the great caliph is preserved on the high altar of the cathedral of Girona. It is a casket, plated with silver gilt, and adorned with pearls, bearing an Arabic inscription invoking blessings upon the prince of the faithful, Hakam II, which reads rather curiously upon a Christian altar. The third hills and jewels of the Moors were very elaborate, as the sword of Boabdil, the last king of Granada, shows. The Saracens were always renowned for their metalwork, and even such small things as keys were beautifully ornamented. How exquisitely the Spanish Moors could chase bronze is proved by the engraving in chapter 11 of the beautiful mosque lamp, which was made for Mohammed III of Granada and is still to be seen at Madrid. The delicacy of the open filigree work is only surpassed by similar work made at Damascus and Cairo. Over and over again, we read the same Arabic inscription, the motto of the kings of Granada, There is no conqueror but God. 
We have already spoken of the brass doors of the palaces of Cordoba, and some remains of these are still to be seen in the Spanish cathedrals. Everyone has heard of the Toledo sword blades, and though the tempering of steel is older in Spain than the invasion of the Arabs, the skill of the Toledo armorers was fostered by the caliphs and sultans of Cordoba. Almeria, Seville, Murcia, and Granada was also famous places for armor and weapons. The will of Don Pedro in the 14th century runs, I also endowed my son with my Castilian sword, which I had made at Seville, ornamented with stones and gold. In arts, sciences, and civilization generally, the Moorish city of Cordoba was indeed the brightest splendor of the world. End of chapter 8